Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and it can be found on page 6 of your bulletin. Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nishon, Nishon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. What you really need to do is give her a hand for an incredible job. I defy any of you to do a better job reading all them names, right? Woo! Most of you are like, what is going on? Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we're asking that you would come and use even this strange text for great maybe even surprising spiritual good. Please come and do what you always do when we come and open your word with sincere and humble hearts, and that is feed us, change us, glorify yourself in us. Please come and send your spirit. Make your word come alive with power. Help us to see you, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are beginning today a new series new teaching series in the Gospel of Matthew, as it's a good time to start off the new year investigating and deepening our understanding in the, the life and the teaching of Jesus himself. Of course, every week we're committed to talking about Jesus, believing that he's the centerpiece and the main theme of every passage of Scripture in the Bible cover to cover, but there's a unique benefit to studying the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, which focus on narrative stories about what Jesus did, 
what Jesus said and how all of that shows us more about who he was and how we ought to relate to him, even love him. And so here we go, the first in what will be a series that will carry us really for several months, a good long look at different portions, not cover to cover the book of Matthew, but rather different key highlights throughout this wonderfully rich story of Jesus. And so we start today in the very beginning of Matthew chapter 1 with this genealogy of Jesus Christ. With all the hard names to pronounce, why is this here? Why does it matter that Matthew would write this, that we would read this? Well, here's the main point that Matthew's trying to get across with this genealogy. Matthew's actually making an argument, you see. Before he gets to the story of Jesus' birth, recorded in chapters 1 and 2, Matthew is establishing that Jesus is indeed from the family line of Abraham and of David. Why is that important? Because God promised Abraham and he promised David in the Old Testament and through them, the people of Israel and through Israel, the whole world, that he would send one of their descendants to rescue the world from all of its sin and sadness. That he would send the Messiah, the promised king, the royal rescuer. Jesus really is the great, 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 great grandson of King David. Matthew is telling us he really, really is the fulfillment of the promise of grace first given to Abraham. He really is. Jesus is the Messiah, our great hope. As verse 1 summarizes, this is the genealogy of Jesus, who? The Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's what Matthew is arguing in presenting this long family history to us. It's almost sort of a, you know, behind the music sort of, you know, retrospective on a celebrity, getting to know a little bit of what goes on in the family life and background of someone who's so well known. But from this, we can draw out a few lessons, which I think really hit home for us. What can we glean from a family tree of Jesus, the Messiah? Three lessons. Number one, that God works in and through unlikely people. God works in and through unlikely people. You need to understand that women were not normally named in ancient Near Eastern genealogies. But Matthew here is insistent on bucking that cultural norm. He includes five different women in this genealogy. Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, Ruth in also in verse 5, Uriah's wife named Bathsheba in verse 6, and of course Mary, the mother of Jesus, in verse 16. But another observation, you know, there were actually other women that Matthew could have listed. In fact, women that had more prominence in Old Testament history, like Sarah, Abraham's wife, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, 
but instead notice something curious about the four women that he chose. Tamar was a Canaanite, not an Israelite. Rahab was a resident of Jericho. Ruth was a Moabitess. Uriah's wife, though an Israelite herself, was married to Uriah, who was a Hittite. These were Gentiles. They were racial outsiders who had come to faith in the God of the Bible. Many of them actually came from nations who were for many generations the enemies of Israel. The New Testament scholar Craig Keener makes the observation that one purpose of other Jewish genealogies was to highlight the purity of one's Israelite ancestry. But Matthew actually moves in the opposite direction. Why? He wants to, us to see right away from the first few paragraphs of his book that God's plan was for all peoples all along. God wants us to transcend racial and cultural barriers as well as gender barriers by the grace of God. These were, in fact, the last people in the world that an ancient Jewish person would expect to be included in the family tree of the Messiah. So Matthew is just highlighting a broader point here, too, and that is just how unlikely it is that God would include such socially surprising, even disadvantaged socially people in the ancient Jewish world, ethnic outsiders, and in that day, women. Do you believe this? Do you know this? That God has this wondrous, glorious habit, commitment to working in and through socially unlikely people. People that you would least expect to be a torch barrier of the redemption of the whole world. People that you would least expect to be a bearer of good news or grace even in your life. You know, Jesus, his own life, his own self reveals this theme of God's as well. Not just his family history, but in who he was. Jesus, after all, didn't come from an aristocratic background. He was working class. Wasn't born in a gold-gilded hospital room, as it were, but rather an animal trough, a manger. He wasn't physically attractive or impressive, as Pastor Glenn last week reminded us. that The prophet Isaiah said there was actually nothing physically about him that would have attracted us to him. Jesus had no social power. He, in fact, didn't even have religious power, institutionally speaking, in that day. As 1 Corinthians tells us, tells the church, brothers and sisters, think about what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world by the world's standards to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world by the world's standards to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. 
What are ways in which you today might be blind to the workings of God because you don't have eyes to see his delivery mechanism and his messengers to you? That right now in the world around you and even in your own life, he might be knocking on your door with the least likely person in your network of relationships. It might be a person that you're just naturally wired to look down on. Maybe because they're not as talented as you might be or you expect people to be. Maybe not as attractive. Maybe not as articulate. Maybe not as wealthy. Maybe not as cool or hip or up to speed on the latest thing in pop culture. Who is it that you're writing off? And could it be that God has grace to give to you right exactly through them? Whether someone in the home or someone at work, someone on your block, someone who might be just like the ones listed here in Jesus's genealogy. Or perhaps you are discounting the way that God might work in and through you because you see yourself looking in the mirror as a quite unlikely person for, to God, for God to work for and for God to work through that maybe such an account can actually bolster your heart with fresh courage and fresh sense of significance that, yes, you, yes, even you, yes, us, even us, God can use to believe to be the delivery system of his redeeming grace, of his message of love, of his life-changing power in someone else's life, in some other institution's existence, yes, through year, you, Dear unlikely friend, God works in and through unlikely people. The second lesson we can draw from this little backstory family tree of the Messiah is that God works in and through not only unlikely people, he works in and through family dysfunction as well. God works in and through family dysfunction and brokenness. One of my favorite movies just to click through and watch 10 or 15 minutes here from time to time, just because it's on cable all the time, really, is the movie Hitch, starring Will Smith and Eva Mendez. And, of course, in the story, Will Smith's character, Hitch, is courting Eva. He's trying to date her and woo her into his life. And, and so, of course, in this great attempt to impress his new friend, he takes her to Ellis Island, this unexpected trip. And while they're touring around, he takes her to this glass-encased sort of book, which is actually a log of handwritten names of people who came to America through Ellis Island. Uh, sort of this moving scene where as she's flipping through, it turns out that Hitch had actually arranged it so that the book was open right to one of her ancestors. Uh, she is sort of flabbergasted and said, hey, that's my great-great-great-grandfather. She begins to cry, moved. But then things get weird as suddenly her tears turn sort of hot and sour, and suddenly she just sort of yelps and runs out of the room, clearly in distress. And you say, well, what is it that happened? What happened? Well, it turns out that her ancestor was actually a serial murderer. Thanks for the reminder. And afterwards, as Hitch was sort of debriefing with her, he explained, well, look, man, I don't know. I, when I read uh, The Butcher of Cadiz, I thought it was actually referring to a profession, not a headline, right? 
you know, you just never know what you might dig up, right? It's a fun reminder. You, you start digging around your family's stories. You never know. You never know, or some of you do know, what kind of junk you might find. And it's not just when you look in the past, but even in the present, if you go in deep, or maybe you don't need to go so deep. Sometimes it's right there in the surface, the brokenness and the dysfunction of our families. What is a genealogy but a, a family tree? And here's the stunning thing. This is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who is both God and man. Look at Jesus' family. He's from this family, this family. If you look closely, it's a family with a past. I mean, look at these names. Let me help you out. Abraham, mentioned in verse 2, he's the father of faith, was also a coward, nearly gave away his wife in order to save his own butt. Jacob, also found in verse 2, was a scoundrel and a manipulator. Tamar, from verse 3, seduced her father-in-law to sleep with her. Rahab, mentioned in verse 5, as you may know, was a prostitute. King David, found in verse 6, had a codependent relationship with his son Absalom and also famously stole another man's wife, Uriah's wife, mentioned in verse 6, Bathsheba, and murdered her husband, Uriah, to cover it up. Rehoboam, Abijah, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Manasseh, from verses 7 through verse 10, were all messed up kings who absolutely abused their power as well as their people. Jesus' family, dare we say it, was a mess. And that's good news for you and me. Do you know the Bible describes Jesus' family going back as a dead tree stump? That's the little picture that we're given. The prophet Isaiah describes it in that way. Some of you are saying, that's, that's pretty much my family logo too, a chopped down tree. That's our family tree. Listen, the Lord wants to give you a new family logo. In Jesus' name. Because there's a promise from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 11 that a, a new little shoot will come up from that stump, that dead stump of David's family. A living branch will once again bear fruit as a flourishing, life-producing tree. This was one of the greatest, most colorful, most powerful pictures and promises of the coming Messiah. You've got the picture in your head. It's this dread, dead, dead tree stump now with the, a poke of new life. And his name is Jesus. And you see, if you embrace him, his family story becomes your family story, which is a story of hope for broken people. Because if God can produce the Messiah of the world through that family, he most definitely can work in your family.
He can redeem your broken family. He can produce good and glory even through the cracks and crevices of what feels like shattered relationships. That no family's sin and no family's dysfunction can keep God from working out his perfect purposes for you. Some of you feel like you just don't know what family I grew up in. You don't know what that weigh, how that weighs me down, how that keeps me back. This passage is telling you no. It's telling you yes, that a new story can be written. That Jesus is the Messiah, the restorer of all broken things, which includes, of course, the massive brokenness of death and of sin and of disease, but also includes the brokenness of our families. Do you believe in this Messiah? Do you believe in the power of God's redemptive grace working through a family like yours? Because you're looking at a family like his. Someone says, you don't know my family. You don't know how bad things are. That would take a miracle. A miracle? Flip the page. You mean a miracle like a virgin birth miracle? God can do it. Family dysfunction could not thwart God's purposes for Jesus it cannot thwart God's purposes for you. How might that encourage you if you have distanced yourself from your families, maybe out of pain, an understandable pain, possibly to consider pressing back in? Maybe it doesn't mean stepping all the way in right away. Maybe it just means carrying them in your heart and prayer in a different way. Maybe it might mean daring to have a conversation that you've been avoiding or taking steps to restoring broken things in your relationships. Maybe it might mean if you've been the source of that brokenness, that you need to be a part of that redemptive repair work approaching people that you have hurt and harmed. Maybe you've been avoiding it for decades, but this can give you the courage that the story is still being written for your family. Do you believe it? Because some of you really believe, I mean, this stuff is so real and raw, that some of you believe it's more possible for Jesus to renew this broken city or our broken world. You believe that more than you can believe that he can actually renew your broken family. Mm -mm. Here's good news for you. Thirdly and lastly, God works in and through unlikely people. He works in and through family dysfunction and brokenness. And lastly, God works in and through history. Matthew organizes this genealogy into three groups of 14, you might have noticed. Verses 1 through 6, and then verses 7 through 11, and then verses 12 through to the end. Israel's early history from Abraham to David, and then he talks about the monarchy, the time under kings from David to the exile in Babylon, and then the period after exile all the way up leading to Christ. 
Matthew, of course, is making the point that Jesus is the climax of Israel's history, the fulfillment of all their hopes, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. It's finally arrived. He has finally arrived, as the book of Galatians put it. The time has now finally and fully come for God to do what he had promised he would always do, the rescue of the world, the rescue of you and me from sin and darkness and death by the cross and resurrection of his son. But it's also a reminder that God is therefore in producing and raising up his Messiah through the history of Israel, through human history, that God himself is the Lord over history. That even despite brokenness and even despite social norms that would seem to work against his purposes, even despite death and even despite sin, time and again, God wins. And he breaks through every imaginable barrier to still enact his purposes to save the world. Nothing can stop him in history. Nothing can hold back his purposes. I mean, I just love reading this passage out loud because Rachel did such a great job of it because you hear the repetition and almost the rhythmic nature of this reading. Go home, if you dare, read it again. Read it out loud. Listen to it. The father of him, the father of this, the person of this, the person of that, and hear it again and again and again and hear even every single one of those stops as a new trophy of the power of God working through the brokenness of history. Nothing can thwart God's redeeming purposes in history. God is sovereign over all things, nations, events, the large things in life, and God always keeps his promises. What if we really believe that? What if we believe how unlikely it was that Jesus would have been born out of these circumstances across all of these generations? What if we really believed that it required the supernatural presence and the power of God to pull that off? What might change? Would we believe that God might be sovereign even over history that continues to be wrecked by terrorism? I was thinking about this the other day. Actually, it was right after the Paris attacks, as everyone was on edge, rightly so, about ISIS and just the threat of terrorism, not only abroad, but even right here in our own city, the nation's capital. I was just pondering, is it possible? Dare we believe that God is reigning sovereignly even over this piece of history? Dare we believe that? Especially when everything feels especially out of control. Dare we believe 2 Chronicles 20, addressing God, you rule over the kingdoms of the nations, even rogue nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Or Psalm 33, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of of the people, the plans of the Lord stand forever, the purposes of his hand through all generations. Is it possible that God is reigning sovereignly even over the darker moments in history, the more painful moments in history? 
Can we believe with confidence and joy that God is reigning even over this church's history? That surely the last five years, as we look at our anniversary, celebrate our anniversary, we can say with joy, God has been good to us. God has been faithful to us. God indeed has actually worked through brokenness, failures, and flaws, a lot of which are mine in this process of building up a new church community. But dare we believe that he will continue to work through the history of this church going forward for the next five years. Lord willing, through the next 50 years. Yes, working in and through unlikely people. Yes, working in and through the brokenness of families and the brokenness of our own lives. Which, of course, reminds us that he's also sovereignly working through our personal histories as well. That yes, even your sin, failures, and brokenness, though we are responsible for them and must grapple with them personally, that even these do not have power to thwart God's purposes for you. Some of you are paralyzed and locked up by some source of failure event, whether recent or long in the past. Do you know that God can redeem those two? The word of God tells us so. The genealogy of Jesus tells these things to us. Do you believe them as you would believe promises from God? Because this is his pattern. This is his pattern to work in and through people like you and me. Unlikely, surprising bottom-of-the-list type of candidates, through the worst of our family dysfunction and brokenness and even the sad parts of ours and human history. This is our Messiah's work. This is what he does. Do you believe that? Are you coming to get to know him? We're just starting. We're going to do that, get to know him throughout the course of this study of Matthew. Thanks be to God for this beginning. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, we're looking to you now, having shown a little bit of yourself and how you work to us, we're looking to you now to help us to believe it and to conform our lives to these truths. Give us your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing. Jesus, I love. 